The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please now turn with me in your Bible to the book of Judges. We are in chapter 15 this evening. My seventh grade football team, I had a teammate who uh, by far was the most gifted athlete on the field at any given time. And he also was the biggest goofball who had a tendency to foul things up. And in a typical situation, this player who played running back would receive the handoff, tiptoe up to the line of scrimmage, dance around the opponent, and oftentimes get tackled for a loss. Well, it seems the only way our coach could get him to focus was to pull him to the sideline, grab him by the face mask, and yell in his face. And so, shaken by the anger of the coach, this gifted player on the very next play, would receive the handoff and go racing 50 yards for a touchdown, completely trampling every opponent in his path, stirred up by the anger of our coach. Tonight, as we continue the Samson narrative, we continue to look at this incredibly gifted man who was empowered by God and yet had a knack for making a mess of things. God, in his grace, gives to Israel an imperfect Savior to provide their redemption. Samson is a picture of Israel, endowed by God's strength, and yet has a tendency to wander away and flirt with disaster. Samson reminds us how much we need a perfect Savior. Please follow as I read Judges chapter 15. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I am going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right To get even with the Philistines, I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. 
Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have, why have you, what have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him, shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a jawbone's donkey, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called in Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we come to these strange encounters, these amazing stories of your power, and through your servants. We pray for wisdom and insight. Guide us that we might better understand the cross, the way of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. In the days of my youth, right, living with my parents, I remember how we would spend New Year's Day watching various bowl games as I helped my father take down the tree and remove the lights from outside on the house. Now, back in those days, before bowl games were spread out over many days and even weeks with the proliferation of cable stations, and uh, oftentimes you could have as many as three prime bowl games happening at the very same time. And, of course, this were the days when the remote control was still fairly new, and so we'd have fun flicking back and forth amongst all the channels trying to keep up with the games and the scores. But occasionally, you would come across a very high-stakes game where your favorite team was playing, and it was a situation where you could hardly watch. Either the game was so close that your team and their opponent were going back and forth, regaining the, the lead, or perhaps your team was getting so terribly blown out by their opponent that you could barely watch. I add my condolences to Eagles fans today as well. Well, watching these episodes of Samson's Fits is kind of like watching your favorite team making mistake after mistake, only to come back with an amazing recovery. 
but then to go on to lose the game anyway due to their own failings. And studying this text for me, looking at it in the broader context, to me it's like the the bowl games on New Year's Day where there's so much going on, it's difficult to focus on one particular element. But focus, we must. I plan to talk about two things tonight. I want us to consider how God uses Samson in spite of himself to outfox Israel's enemies. I also want us to reflect upon the tragedy that is his life, his failure to live up to his calling as one set apart to be a savior for God's people. Well, as we come to the beginning of our text in chapter 15, we recognize that some time has passed since the fiasco that was Samson's wedding day. Now, some of us have been to very bad weddings. I recall many years ago going to my cousin's wedding and observing her fiancé and many groomsmen showing up to a rehearsal dinner quite inebriated. Well, we've observed bad things, and I can assure you nothing quite tops Samson's wedding. In the previous chapter, chapter 14, we learned that he kills 30 men to pay off a gambling debt to the Philistines, and then his wife is married off to his best man. Now, somehow, this little detail escapes Samson as we come to chapter 15. Time has passed. He has calmed down from his most recent fit of rage, and he is coming to the house of his wife to consummate his marriage, goat in arm in lieu of flowers, And yet he meets the father of the bride there preventing him from entering the home, bearing the uncomfortable news that this girl is married to another man. Now, it's quite possible that the father did this, married off the girl to save face, to spare the daughter from the disgrace of not having a husband at her own wedding. Now, so far, we've learned a number of things about Samson. Samson doesn't seem to take the word no very well. Dr. James Dobson's book, The Strong-Willed Child, was written for boys like Samson. He was not a compliant child. He was used to getting his own way with his less-than-firm parents. He has a problem with respecting other people's boundaries. He has a bit of a temper. So how will he take this unfortunate news? Well, thankfully, he imposes no harm on this father-in-law of his, who, by the way, tries to make nice by offering his younger and prettier daughter to Samson as a wife. Nor does Samson force his way with the wife and replacement husband. So rather than inflict revenge upon the family, he vents his fury on the Philistines. Of course, Samson failing to take responsibility for himself, having sought an unbelieving wife, having gambled with the pagans, Samson proceeds to wreak havoc upon this Philistine community. He does a strange thing. The text tells us he captures 300 foxes. He ties them in pairs, tail to tail. He sticks within each pair of tails a torch 
lights them all, and turns them loose to ruin the standing piles of grain that have been collected from the recent harvest. And it also tells us he destroys the vineyards and the olive orchards for good measure. Now, scholars tell us that these animals were likely jackals rather than foxes, which are very common in this area. And jackals travel in packs that are relatively easy to catch. And the word for jackal and fox is identical in the Hebrew. Well, sadly for Samson's would-be in-laws, the Philistines decide to fight fire with fire. They prove good on their threat that they offered to, uh, back in chapter 14, when they coerced the bride to entice Samson to reveal the answer to his riddle, threatening to burn her and her family alive. The Philistines will not attack Samson directly, fearing his superior strength. So they sacrifice their own, wounding his heart, which is charred by the brutal deaths of this family that dies trapped in a burning house. Well, not to be outdone, Samson strikes back with vengeance in what is an unspecified wreck of human carnage. Here it is described in the Hebrew with this obscure phrase, this pile of defeated men that resembled piles of hips and thighs as a result of Samson's mighty blow. Well, having beaten his enemies again, Samson now goes down to his man cave at the rock of Etam to sulk and recover emotionally. We see a pattern emerging in Samson's life. Every time the Philistines try to gain the upper hand on this hero, he outfoxes them with another devastating defeat. They are no match for Samson's superior divine strength. This struggle seems to illustrate illustrate the desperation of rebels who repeatedly try to outmatch Almighty God. It is always a failing proposition. The opponents of Jesus and his followers, who are, in the words of the Pharisee Gamaliel, who eloquently reveals that that they are only only opposing God and their desire to suppress the gospel. No effort of the enemies of God will ever hinder the advancement of God's truth. God always gets the victory. And yet, strange still are the ways in which God propels his kingdom forward. Well, in the third and most devastating encounter between these two great foes, the Philistines reveal their determination, their unwillingness to give up, to get back at Samson. Their efforts remind us of the Canaanites who come back to face Joshua and his invading armies again and again to suffer punishment, defeat after defeat. Like Pharaoh, whose heart grew harder and harder against the Almighty. So these people suffer greatly as they rebel against the will of Yahweh. Having already taken away Samson's love, the Philistines now threaten his people, not wanting trouble 
with the Philistines, the cowardly men of Judah, approached Samson to tie him up and hand him over to their enemies. This tribe, which had led the people Israel in conquest, were now unwilling to fight and merely submit to Philistine rule. They even had their ultimate weapon on their side and yet lacked the courage to overthrow the control of their enemies. Well, Samson complies. He is handed over, bound and gagged like a house cat, handed to the vet in a cage. But as the Philistines approach with shouts of victory, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. His ropes binding him melt like wax in the kitty cat, morphs into a raging tiger. The only weapon at hand he finds is a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He proceeds to make donkeys of men, striking them, piling them up in heaps. An amazing body count of 1,000 slain. This one-man army sends the enemy fleeing in terror and no doubt left the men of Judah ashamed with their tails between their legs. While accomplishing this great feat, Samson finds himself spent, completely exhausted. He realizes he is vulnerable, near death due to dehydration, with no imminent water supply available to him. And so for the first time recorded in his narrative, he cries out, This Savior of Israel calls upon the true supplier of his strength, who graciously provides for this weak man to refresh him to revive him, body and spirit. This episode anticipates the next chapter when we find the only other and final episode of Samson crying out to the Lord when he again finds himself desperate with his life at stake, bound before the enemy. In both cases, we find Samson's prayers less than admirable. They lack piety, They are roguish, self-centered, and yet God answers this man. He provides relief to his people, a great blow to their enemies, and brings much glory to himself. We can only imagine how these stories quite quite, uh, probably were among Israel's favorites. Telling these stories would have sparked laughter amongst faithful Jews rollicking over the foolishness of the Philistines who repeatedly fall short before Israel's strong man. But those who see some comic relief in these stories also must take a sobering lesson in the tragic nature of this tale. Israel's failure to follow Samson's lead, to end the oppression of their enemies, symbolizes their rejection of God's strength which is more than powerful enough to supply everything they needed to overcome their foes. I believe, likewise, the church today can take a lesson, take a humbling look at our forefathers, Israel of old, and ask whether it is true that we too fail to call upon the Lord for his grace, for his strength as we struggle with our sin 
as we contend to beat back the darkness in our communities, to spread the salt and light in the Philistine-infested territory that is our modern secular society. Woe unto us if we rely upon our wealth and our ministry tools with a cavalier attitude. Woe unto us if we wait until we are dry, exhausted, helpless, before we cry out to the Lord to intervene. We need him every day for every battle. Samson, I believe, is a parable of Israel and the nations. Yes, he is a true historical figure. Everything written here is completely accurate. Yet, it's helpful to understand him as a microcosm of Israel's flirtatious relations with the pagans. Israel's failure to preserve God's purity standards and so bring suffering upon themselves as well as the nations they were intended to bless. Samson, by tangling himself up in pagan relations, only hurts himself and brings greater misery to the unbelievers. Samson, in his own way, seemed to be trying to do right, though he had picked an unbelieving wife against the will of his parents. He seeks to be faithful, at least, in marriage. But God, in his providence, through the bride's father, blocks his path. Samson not getting his way goes on a rampage. Sadly, in the next chapter, we see that he descends deeper into impurity. He consorts with a prostitute. This indiscretion sets up his further failure by falling into the hands of a hired woman, an assassin who will bring his downfall. Samson's ongoing problems with lust and anger so evident in these chapters, should have led him to repentance. He should have settled down at this point, sought a believing Israelite wife, built a family, enjoyed a career of leading and protecting Israel against her foes with God's blessing. But he can't do it. He can't settle down. Like many rogue males on the loose in our society today, Aimless, driven by lust and the passion of the moment, they hurt women. They embarrass their parents. They provide job security to police officers. Only the cross of Christ can tame the heart of Samson. It's only when people, when the church of God, see their own bankruptcy and helplessness that we can utilize the power of the cross to make a real difference in people's lives. I fear that our society in many ways is heading on, a, on towards a Samson-like train wreck. You can point to all kinds of things, out-of-control government deficit spending, the increasing power grabs against the traditional institutions of family and church that seem to be crumbling under the pressures of secular materialism. What does it take for a people to wake up, to realize their helplessness without the intervening grace of God? How may God's people 
be salt and light, who are called to be salt and light, respond to the growing crises around us. I believe it begins by us realizing that we are not heroes. As I've said before, judges, the judges in these texts are not the heroes. God is the only hero. Only God is Savior. And yet it is our calling to radically and compellingly point people to Jesus Christ as the only one who can make a real lasting difference in the lives of individuals and society as a whole. Government programs, political parties, economic recoveries will not help us. We need Jesus. Everything we do as a church, as families, as witnesses before a watching world, needs to be about proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. Samson is a tragic figure who fails to live up to his Nazarite vow, set apart to be a deliverer for the people of God. He represents Israel, who also fails to fulfill God's purposes, to show forth his glory and his holiness before an idolatry-enslaved world, groping about in spiritual darkness. Samson is like a covenant child raised by believing parents, nurtured in Christian community, and yet leaves home and falls into the seduction of the world and its pleasures, making wreck of his life, ruining his testimony, and learning a bit too late to make much difference. Church, we must pray. Pray for the work of God in the hearts of Samson's in our midst. The strong will, the hard-hearted, the gifted. Pray for marriages on the brink that are bent by one or the other or both, centered on, consumed with self-centeredness. For teens and young adults who are determined to show their parents just how they can make it just fine without the Lord. Samson is a weak savior. Israel was a weak people. And we, the contemporary church and our predecessors, so often poorly reflect the grace of God that ought to be on display before a watching world. We are reminded in the stories of the judges how desperately we need a real judge, a real and mighty savior, Jesus, who alone is pure, who alone demonstrates self-control, who alone commits himself to fulfill the will of God and so goes on to defeat our enemies and provides us lasting security. Samson, much like Jesus, was handed over to his enemies, betrayed by his own people. Both of them are rejected saviors. Each of them are too much for their enemies. They overcome the impossible by providing a surprising, unexpected victory. But that's where the comparisons stop. Samson is self-centered, roguish, vindictive, and vengeful, used by God in spite of himself. He is a weak and partial savior, a shadow, but a shadow of the reality to come. In contrast, Jesus is God-centered, gracious, 
compassionate, bold, consumed with the will of God. He is a true and complete Savior. He is the genuine and flawless hero who wins over the enemy by toppling down walls of unbelief. Like Samson, Jesus too will go to his death in apparent defeat, only to surprise with an astounding victory. Samson consorted with the pagans to satisfy his lust. And yet Jesus interacts with the messiness of humanity out of love. He intertwines himself with a questionable, impure bloodline. He intermingles with sinners. He involves himself with the pagans that he might bring the blessing and healing of God focused on a truly redemptive agenda. In my younger years, I loved superheroes and comic strips, movies, Saturday morning cartoons. There was the Incredible Hulk with his mighty strength, Batman with his cunning crime-fighting skills, the amazing Spider-Man, and of course, Superman, the greatest of them all. And yet, if you'll recall, all of those superheroes had weaknesses. The Hulk only became the Hulk when he was angry. Spider-Man, otherwise known as Peter Parker, has all the common problems of a young man. Problems with his job, lack of money, girlfriend problems, and of course, Superman was undone by a kryptonite. Our culture longs for a superhero who will save us, who will deliver us from all of our problems, rising unemployment, the threat of terror, rising national debt, the breakdown of the family and educational establishments. But there is only one who can meet us and deliver us, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us learn from Samson. Let us learn from Israel of old to cry out to the Lord in humble dependence, to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly and who gladly and generously provides us everything we need for life and for godliness. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, you are a mighty, mighty Savior. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have victory, we have triumph, and we pray for the grace to cling fast, to hold to what is true. Help us to gain wisdom from what we've looked at and studied tonight. Lead us tonight, O Lord, in this week to come, that we might live for your honor and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.